Welcome to the Yale Women's Leadership Initiatives podcast series, Women of Yale, a series dedicated to telling the stories of past and current women students, their experiences of struggle, of identity, and of empowerment on campus and beyond. My name is McKenna Christmas. I'm a current sophomore in Yale College and one of WLI's conference directors. Today we are joined by Ms. Cherie Hart, one of our Remembering 50 contributors. Remembering 50 is a book that features the voices and stories of alumni of all gender identities, backgrounds, and career paths. In the coming weeks, we will invite some Remembering 50 contributors to read and reflect on excerpts of their essays and their experiences on campus. Before we begin our Q&A to open this episode, Ms. Hart has agreed to read her contribution to Remembering 50, A Door Opened on Hill House Avenue. By the time my class got to Yale, having women on campus was no longer an experiment. I graduated 10 years after the first co-educational class was admitted. We were not a novelty, but the male to female ratio was still off kilter. As Yale opened its doors to women, one door in particular changed the trajectory of my life. One day, I found myself on Yale President Kingman Brewster's doorstep too scared to knock and ask him for a bursar job. He had just been appointed United States Ambassador to the United Kingdom in 1977, and I figured he needed help boxing up his academic papers and clearing out his home on Hill Health Avenue. Eventually, I made myself rap on the entrance of his imposing house. Brewster was gracious when he greeted me. If he was surprised that I showed up unannounced to ask for a job, he never showed it and easily agreed to hire me as we casually chatted on his front step. I was stunned. I did various errands for him, from writing letters and thank you notes to people who had congratulated him on an ambassadorial appointment, to walking his dog and entertaining local reporters waiting for an interview. We never had a chance to talk much during my short time in his home, but he would periodically check in on me and express his appreciation for my help. I was sad when the job ended and even more unhappy when he left for his new international post. He had been revered on campus. During his years at Yale, he had opened its admission policies to enroll more minorities and admit women to what had been a men's college. He was accessible to students and always made time for them. While brilliant Yale presidents succeeded him, I was always disappointed that his name would not be the one on my diploma. As graduation approached, I was desperate for a full-time job. Banks and investment firms back then came to campus in droves to hire new graduates. I had wanted to travel and write about the world, but such a plum job was not on offer. Then, improbably, a representative from the National Enquirer came to Yale in search of new reporters. I was one of the very few who signed up for the job interview with that infamous tabloid paper. The recruiter asked me to tell him the nerviest thing that I had ever done, and I told him about knocking on Brewster's door. He seemed to enjoy the audacity of such a move and asked more about my stint with the Yale president. That did it. I got the job as the National Enquirer's youngest reporter and moved to its sunny Lantana, Florida newsroom, which was a sea of men with only a smattering of women. The female employees, for the most part, were the secretaries to the editors or worked on the research desk. I had entered a boys' club with only a few women reporters. 
The picture wasn't unusual to me. After all, I had just graduated from Yale and was no stranger to gender imbalance. Chasing celebrities and writing health tips was an adventure for a couple of years and allowed me to pay off my student loans in short order. To get interviews with superstars, I had to knock on many doors, but not all of them answered in the welcoming spirit that Brewster had shown me. And in many instances, the Hollywood stories I was pursuing warranted a good door slam. I knew it was time to find a more serious writing job eventually. I floundered for a few years and first as a freelance reporter and then as an unemployed hack writer after a magazine layoff. Ultimately, after making a nervous cold call to a UN press office, I got a job interview with two Yaleys. Bill Draper, class of 50, who was head of the United Nations Development Program, and Russ Boner, class of 52, who was running Draper's communications department. Instead of a formal job interview, we had a lively conversation about college and travel. Our chat reminded me of that breezy discussion with Brewster on his Hill House Avenue steps. I was hired. For the next 30 years, the world was my newsbeat for the UN. For more than 60 countries, I was an eyewitness to the impact of conflicts on communities, the aftermath of floods, tsunamis, earthquakes, and the despair and courage of people rebuilding lives after losing everything but hope. I encountered all types, from heroes to heels, from the corrupt to the compassionate. I camped with reindeer herders. I interviewed lepers. I witnessed remote cultures under threat and learned what grit means from those who endured unspeakable tragedy. I might never have had such a perch in the crosshairs of a world in turmoil had it not been for Kingman Brewster and his willingness to take a chance and not turn me away. I knocked on many doors in my travels, some thatched or destroyed, some commanding and heavily guarded. In most cases, people were eager to share their tea, their biscuits, their photos, their stories. It was Brewster's openness that showed me that it's worth it to simply knock and ask. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to be conducting this interview today. Ms. Hart, would you mind giving our listeners a self-introduction? Sure, I'm so excited to be part of this remarkable project, um, and I'm glad that my essay was chosen to be part of this book. Um, I am Cherie Hart. I was Yale class of 1979 in Davenport College, and as you can tell from my excerpt, I uh, started off uh, as a tabloid reporter recruited on the Yale campus. Uh, and for the National Enquirer. And the National Enquirer back then uh, was not something I had ever read, but they did sell it in the Wawa uh, newsstand. Um, and from the National Enquirer, when I realized that I paid off my Yale desk and it was time to get a real job, I left and floundered around as a freelance reporter in the 80s uh, in New York. Uh, eventually landed a job with a television station um, and then wanted to get back into print, floundered some more, and through friends ended up improbably with a job in a press office at the United Nations Development Program, where I spent 30 years of my life traveling all over the world to more than 60 countries, 
um, covering wars, tsunamis, floods, tragedies, uh, and then plenty of stories of struggle and triumph. So I am semi-retired now. The UN got me and uh, my husband to Istanbul when all of the refugees were coming in uh, here from Syria. The UN opened a big regional hub uh, and I retired as a press officer after living in Bangkok for the UN and New York. So we ended up here in Istanbul and I left after 30 years and wrote a book about the whole thing called From Hollywood to Holy Wars. But my husband and I stayed here in beautiful Istanbul after our two girls were raised abroad and were off and their careers are launched. So here we are and I'm writing and was happy to be part of this whole writing and multimedia uh, project with me. Well, thank you very much. Um, to jump into the Q&A, my first question is to go back to the beginning, what led you to Yale? What led me to Yale? Oh, um, I never thought I'd get in. I think everybody says that. Um, and I got in from the last, at the last minute from the waiting list. I thought I was going to go to University of Virginia. I grew up in Virginia and it was right down the down the pike, um, but um, one of my closest friends when I was growing up went to Yale. Uh, and she's a year older than me, Nan Helm, and she was class of 1978, and I used to visit her. Uh, and I loved the campus, and she said, you should apply, and I just laughed, and, um, and I didn't get in initially, and then I did get in uh, just as it was registration time. So instead of driving south to uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, I, I headed north, um, with my dad and a few suitcases to New Haven. So I hadn't, it wasn't a premeditated thought, um, but uh, yeah, it was just a friend led me there. What were some of your most meaningful experiences at Yale, such as a class you learned a lot from, special memory, or extracurriculars? I think many people will say the same. It's the friendships that you, you make there. Um, classes in particular that I loved, one was, um, John Morton Blum's American History, and I think not only did I learn some early 20th century American history, he taught me how to write, uh, even though it was a history class, um, just his lectures unfolded in a poetic manner, um, and I, I always carried his, uh, his idea of a good essay in my head. Um, so he was one very memorable um, aspect I have of, of Yale. Um, I think some of the guest lecturers that came, one in particular changed my life. Uh, he was a CBS News reporter, um, Bob Pierpoint, and he gave a lecture about what it was like to cover the White House in the same years um, that uh, John Blum was teaching, sort of the early 20th century, mid. And then, um, yeah, he was a White House reporter in early, early days of radio, actually. So, um, uh, yeah, he was a very memorable part of, the, of my experience there. And from reading your book, my impression is that he's the one who convinced you to take the job at the Inquirer, correct, Mr. Pierpoint? That's right. Bob Pierpoint uh, came to Yale to lecture about covering the White House and what it was like to be a White House reporter. 
and I went through the receiving line to thank him, but to tell him I had a dilemma. And most of the people standing in that line wanted a job. They wanted to get a blood test job with CBS. And, you know, he would say, yeah, uh, you know, send me a resume. And I went through and I said, I have a job offer, but I have a problem it's with the National Enquirer. And he grabbed my arm and he yanked me right beside me. He said, you wait there. I need to talk to you. And he graciously worked through the receiving line. And, um, and then he uh, spent quite a bit of time with me explaining why I actually should take that job, but I should not stay. I should definitely not stay. You should stay for a couple of years, pay off your loans, learn how to get a story, uh, and leave. So on campus, there's a really popular buzzword that we often hear as a student now um, called imposter syndrome. And that refers to this feeling that maybe your admissions officer made a mistake. It's a feeling of self-doubt. It brings along thoughts like, I'm not qualified or I'm not good enough to be here. In your autobiography, From Hollywood to Holy Wars, something I really appreciated was your openness about feeling self-doubt and struggling with the false sense of inadequacy, not just at Yale, but also throughout your career as a journalist. So I wanted to ask, what did you find helped you to reckon with these feelings, whether that be support you found within Yale or outside of it? Yes, um, all I can say is I think it's a syndrome that hits women more than men. Um, and I don't know why it's not like, uh, I mean, personally, I don't know why I had it because I was always supported with what I did. Um, but I, I don't know why, where it came from, but it, it haunted me even in my later years uh, at UNDP. Um, covering the aftermath of, of, of the conflict in a country when I, I knew what, how to get a story and I knew who needed to be interviewed, but I, I always wondered, is this going to be the story I can't come back with? Is this the one that's going to prove me a fraud? Um, but all I can say is you just have to believe in yourself, and I'm not sure that people around you they can tell you, oh, I love your writing, or I love your book, or you know what you're doing. Ultimately, it comes down to self-knowledge and uh, believing that you can do whatever is put in front of you. Um, but also, I think as you progress in your career and you see other people who actually um, are not that qualified or not that competent, and you see them in the corner offices, and you realize, what, what was I doubting myself for when that nim nut is over there <laughs> running the show? So you just have to believe in yourself. So kind of going back to your self-introduction, going from Yale to reporting at the National Enquirer to working for the United Nations Development Program are quite extraordinary transitions. Would you mind giving a brief overview of your career to our listeners? Um, just more insight into how did you end up working for these organizations? And then what are projects or places that stood out to you in your many years of work? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I wish there were simple answers. And I also wish I could say that I had this clear career trajectory that I knew uh, this would happen and this would happen and this would happen. But I, I didn't. I just knew I wanted to write. 
And I knew I wanted to see the world and write about it. Um, so I was lucky actually that the National Enquirer came because it was the only newspaper that did come um, as, as, as uh, absurd as it, it sounds that you to start off the National Enquirer, but I did learn basics of reporting and I did learn how to get information from people that had no interest in talking to me. Um, so, but but there, I think in every career you flounder around and you have self-doubt and you wonder where next. Uh, I think after you get that first job, almost getting the second one is the harder, harder one because you then it really is you trying to figure out what your path is. It's not a recruiter. It's not right out of Yale. It's you've got to figure out okay what direction. And um, and I also floundered. I was unemployed. I was a freelance writer in the early '80s, and New York City was filled with you know mediocre writers um, and all scrambling for the same freelance work. So I, I did flounder a long time and doubted, doubted whether I could write, doubted this career choice. Um, but I think I, I ended up getting a television job, but only because I applied to about 200 TV stations at once. Um, and my mom just kept saying, all you need is that one job offer. So I remember back then, it wasn't a computer search, I dumped 200 cover letters into the mailbox and I literally got one job offer and that's all I needed. So so it, it then I became a television reporter and, and didn't really like being on camera. And, um, and then by then I had developed a few contacts. I think when you're looking for jobs, you use every human being you can think of in the network that you're, you've developed. As you get older, your network gets bigger, it gets more complex, people drop out and people drop in. So the next job was through a friend who was running a magazine. Um, and then after that, again, I was floundering around, where next? But a, a, a job interview at the UN that took place in a bar was through a friend of a friend. Now, I don't know that it's it's that kind of job market now where you can get an interview in a bar and get a job. I think it's much more computerized and it's much less personal, but it's still personal contact help, no matter how computerized a, a job search is. Um, so then the next job um, from the, the job interview on a bar stool in Grand Central Station led me to my career at the UN. Um, and then that's how it happened, but it wasn't plan, there was no recruiter, there was no uh, uh, computerized filling out forms. It was just, it was more random. But I think no matter what your search is or what path you want to take, what's important is a willingness to take chances and to follow what you want to do, follow your heart. Because if you follow a path that really doesn't sit right, it's going to backfire down the road. So just take chances. Make mistakes. <laughs> That's what I found most meaningful about your book. And one of the more impactful elements to me was the fact that it wasn't this clear trajectory path. Oh, I plan to do this. And this is my path. Boom, 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 boom. It was very open about, look, you're going to try different things. Some of them are going to work. Some of them aren't. But you're going to end up where you're meant to be if you follow what you really want to do. I think that's a really powerful message, especially 
for our listeners because most of them are young women and sometimes it's intimidating when you see people come in with these established careers you're just starting out and you have so much uncertainty about what lies ahead so i'm very appreciative that you're open about that based on your work in the undp do you have places projects that stand out to you, favorite places that you visited, projects that you found most meaningful or that you kind of still carry with you today? It's hard to say, I mean, travel all over to every, every continent. I was very privileged to um, have that kind of uh, opportunity to see so much of the world. But I think one of the standout countries, and I still believe it is the wildest place left on earth, is Papua New Guinea. I think it's a country that has 700 languages. Um, there's so many tribes, and I believe there's still tribes that haven't been discovered in those hills. Uh, it, it was fascinating. Um, it was terrifying. Um, and uh, I got to travel around with marine biologists and um, all over the country and in, in dangerous growth were actually what I didn't put in my book a week after we we were driving around um, looking at the Sepik River and trying to the UN wanted to restock the Sepik River which didn't have enough fish to feed upstream tribes they were malnourished so but uh, one of the UN jeeps flipped over a week later and the uh, gentleman that I had been traveling with he died um, and that happens a lot uh, in my 30 years where I realized, you know, a week later some tragedy had happened and it, each time it happened, it made me realize how precious life is, but also how fragile and, you know, uh, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. You're in a UN building that's blown up and you've just left. Or I kept seeing it more and more. Um, and I think that that is something that will always stay with me. Is there something you wish had received more airtime or more publicity? Well, I can tell you right now, one tragedy that is not getting enough world attention is what's going on in Yemen, which is the biggest um, humanitarian crisis in the world. And um, I think the Western press is not covering it enough. Um, I know living here in Turkey, the BBC is, is, is covering it, but it is a lost uh, disaster. Um, that is just a, a tragedy that um, I think the world has turned its back on. And I think uh, more attention needs to be paid to that part of the world. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's something that I think a lot of us would like to see covered more widely both in classes as well as in the media. Based on, again, your communications work, social media has become this huge thing and you kind of got to witness the rise of social media a little bit. So how did that change communications in your opinion? Yeah, interesting question again that you have. Yeah, it didn't exist uh, when I first started my career and it, it didn't exist when I first moved to Bangkok with the UN uh, in Thailand. We lived there 14 years and it was in the middle of that that social media started to catch on. Um, and in the early days, uh, UNDP, instead of when social media was evolving, um, Instead of using uh, social media for 
social good, we were, were using it just to promote ourselves, to promote what the UN was doing and how great it was doing. And it was just, we were talking to each other um, um, and, you know, posting successes and it just was not very gratifying and it wasn't a neutral platform to uh, raise attention. It was more to raise attention about the successes. So I, I found it um, a little vapid, especially in the previous years when we were working with reporters and um, covering events in depth and all of a sudden we had to get it down to you know, a, a couple dozen characters um, with hashtags and, uh, and it was just very unsatisfying to me. Um, but now that I've left and I'm writing and um, pushing books out and trying to get followers or trying to get people to uh, pay attention I, to something, um, a fundraising book, for instance, I, I understand the appeal and I, I'm understanding it more. But I still miss in-depth coverage. And I, I like my favorite part of social media is when somebody has a link that ultimately leads me to something that's more in-depth. So it's a way of getting my attention, but I find it unsatisfactory if it's just a tweet. I want more. So that's been a really interesting thing just to learn about and ask how much technology has shifted approaches of such major organizations. In your book, From Hollywood to Holy Wars, you also talk about the Millennium Development Goals at the time um, and how, as someone working in communications for the UN, this was challenging because the public wasn't necessarily aware of what they were or felt any connection to them. So now, of course, we have the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, recently, COVID-19 has presented a new challenge in that it has exacerbated the inequities that the SDGs had hoped to address by 2030. My question to you is, how would you approach this from a communication standpoint? And how do you think the UN can encourage continued support, motivation, and even just awareness in such disheartening times? I think actually this is one time when the UN can actually help promote the right messages. Um, I don't think any one country can go it alone. This is when the world has to pull together. Uh, I think it's a tragedy that the U.S. was maligning the World Health Organization, which is an organization, yes, it has flaws, they all do, but that is the one organization for which the world can listen. And I think this is a time for an effective use of social media putting out public service announcements with the same messaging instead of this confusion, masks, no masks, hand washing, it won't help. It, consistent messaging globally could have, could have taken place. And I think politics got in the way. Um, I see UN public service announcements on national level still online, which are actually very effective. Um, I saw a, a, a government one here in the in the metro um, put together by the Turkish government, which was remarkable about how to properly put on and off a mask. And I realized just sitting, waiting to get to my next stop, I realized what I was doing wrong. I think that's when social media, that's when a, 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 a global body can actually 
pull the world together because this is a pandemic that is affecting the entire world. Going off of just your feedback about like the World Health Organization, in your book, you're very candid about the positive aspects of working for a UN agency, but also the frustrations. The current presidential administration has pulled the US from UN agencies like the Human Rights Council and overall has shown a more decreasing level of cooperation. The common narrative to justify these decisions has been a frustration with the UN. For example, something that's cited a lot is hypocrisy within the Human Rights Council. So I wanted to ask, being someone with an insider's perspective, witnessing both the positives of the UN as well as the flaws, what are your thoughts about the US's current strategy and what do you think would be the ideal relationship between the US and the UN? On my own observations, I, I think that the way to improve the UN uh, is to stay with it and to work from inside to improve it. It needs to be updated. There are way too many agencies. There, there, and some of those agencies, if they disappeared, they would make not a difference. However, there are other agencies that are there to provide food and medicine and to help place refugees who have been displaced into new homes. So there's plenty of room for the UN to do good, and it continues to do good. It is not a monolith. It's made up of dozens of specialized agencies, and that's what people don't understand completely. Some of those agencies, some of them are bureaucracies that could go. But I believe in the UN. I still believe in multilateralism. I still believe that no country can go it alone. Um, and that there is, is, the UN offers a platform for the world to, to speak and to be heard. And without it, there is no such platform. And I, I, I think it is vital. But it's also important to keep in mind it is not one, it is not just that building on First Avenue that everybody sees and knows. It is not just the Security Council. It's what it does in the field in the specialized agencies, the ones that deal with refugees, with health issues, um, and the ones that protect human rights, um, and the ones that push for uh, equality. Um, between men and women, uh, equality of all countries. So it's, it's a valuable international forum that without it, the world would be in trouble, more trouble than it's already in. Yale is fortunate enough to sometimes run trips to the UN through student organizations. And I was able to go on one. And something that really stood out to me was the fact that, yes, the UN does have flaws and these issues, but at the same time, it's so palpable that there are people there who want to make a difference and are willing to have a conversation, and it does present this forum. Something that amazed me was you had, for example, women activists who traveled all the way from Mali for maybe three seconds of speaking time. It was just really inspirational to me, so I, I definitely agree with you, and thank you very much for drawing attention to that point. Going on to issues facing women, which is something that WLI is very focused on. One such issue that women disproportionately face is sexual harassment. In your autobiography, you mentioned your observation of impunity for men for inappropriate behavior in the workplace. You've previously addressed the boys club environment 
of the Inquirer, as well as detailing harassment you and colleagues faced in one of the UNDP offices. You make a very strong point in your book about women not reporting these incidences for fear of being fired, or in the case of an international organization, even losing their visas. If you're comfortable speaking on the subject, would you mind sharing about this and discussing this awful dilemma that so many women face? Well, I think, I think what's different now are uh, that these issues are out in the open and people are talking about it. Um, but I think it's still uh, an issue in, in every business. We've seen it in the entertainment business. Uh, we've seen it on Wall Street. We've seen it in the television business. We've seen it uh, in international uh, arena, the UN. Uh, but I, I think it's good that it's out in the open now. Uh, and because of that, people are being um, held accountable. But it doesn't mean it's disappearing. Um, you know, I, I felt it more on the pay scale rather than uh, being muzzled at work or being physically attacked. Um, but I did feel like um, I was paid much less than my colleagues, uh, male colleagues who were doing the exact same work. Um, and I did at the time um, see that men were getting the big jobs where women were not. And that is changing now. I, I left the UN officially about five years ago and I'm, I'm seeing changes now. I'm seeing more managers who are women in the office. Um, but I still think there are men who are getting away with, um, um, they're getting away with behavior that it is untenable and women are starting to call them out on it, but I still think there is a fear of being um, pegged as a troublemaker. Uh, and as you said at the UN, for some women, it's a, an added fear of not just losing their job and being pegged as a troublemaker and not being promoted. It's if you're in a foreign country, you're at risk of losing your visa um, that's keeping you there working. So uh, there is a no tolerance policy, I know, at the UN, and they're working very hard to uh, enforce it. But it's, there's still a long way to go. I think in all fields, there's a long way to go. But people are talking about it. People are exposing it. It is not something that is just shoved under a rug anymore. Women and women empowerment, it's something that we're really focused on at WLI. So I also wanted to bring up your work you did shortly after the UNDP. So would you mind talking about, and excuse me if I pronounce it wrong, the Hizar Anatolian Support Society, its mission, how did you get involved, your work, memorable moments? Yes. Um, there are very conservative parts of Turkey, and then there are some that are far more um, secular. But I would say uh, the far eastern part of the country is so conservative that often women um, are not even uh, able to leave their houses. They, they are um, kept at home, and they do whatever their fathers or their brothers or their husbands tell them to do. And they don't have a lot of freedom to just do what they want to do and go where they want to go. Um, so when I left the UN, um, I volunteered to do some um, writing and some fundraising writing for that organization, HAD, 
in the eastern reaches of, of the country of Turkey. And it, it really shocked me to meet these women, many of whom um, were never really allowed outside of their homes. And this organization uh, was run by an old, older Turk. And he, um, just because he had such an, a, a, a beautiful demeanor and he was an older Turk, he would approach uh, some of these homes and talk to the fathers and talk to the husbands and say, you know, if you let your, your daughter out or your wife out and just a few hours a day, come to our workshop, she can learn how to make traditional rugs or raise uh, honey um, that will actually help in comfort your whole, your whole uh, household and all of your children. So it wasn't just teaching women how to make a living. I think the social aspect of it was was far more um, life changing for these women, and they just look forward to the few hours that they could spend among themselves uh, and just outside of their homes. So I I volunteered for them. I, I heard I read about them in Time Out Turkey, Time Out Istanbul, and uh, you know you want to volunteer, and I just quit the UN so. I, I knocked on their door. They had an office in, in not too far from my house. And, and I talked to these two old Turks playing backgammon and said, I just quit the UN, but I really love what you're doing and I want to volunteer for you. So I flew to the eastern reaches of the country with these, with, with these guys. And I love these women. And I, I attended some of their workshops. And our house is filled with the rugs that they make. Um, I bought tons of their honey. Um, but uh, it's, you know, it's a dodgy part of the country and for security reasons, um, eventually I had to stop going out there, but I'm still in touch with the founders of HAB and I still buy their rugs. <laughs> I thought that was so neat to learn about not only the project, but also how you made sure to touch on that it was really impactful for these women. Not only now do they have like skill sets that are really useful and that they can make a living off of, but then they have this community of other women that they're able to talk to, which is something in all cultures, in all parts of the world, that is extremely important and valuable to everyone. Um, it is, and it's remarkable how we, we take it for granted too. So I most recently saw that you wrote a book in which all profits go to COVID-19 aid, which is really cool. So I guess one of my final questions is if you could inform our listeners about this project as well as what are you up to now? Yes, I did write a book um, in lockdown here in Turkey. Uh, I didn't have much freelance work coming in and I was trying to figure out what to do. And my daughter, one of our daughters lives in Paris and she was in lockdown and she started painting um, what her cat was up to. Um, in lockdown, he was bored. They just moved to Paris and they thought they were going to go explore Paris, but they're in lockdown. So she painted, she made 18 paintings of her cat and she turned them into a year and a half calendar as a birthday present for my husband. And the photos, the paintings were so beautiful. I said, Casey, would you mind if I took your paintings and made a children's story out of them? Uh, from the perspective of your cat, Miles. So um, the book is called The, the Shacks in the Flats. 
uh, as a takeoff of the cat and hat. And it's a rhyming story about Miles and his boredom and lockdown and COVID-19 lockdown. But he realizes that actually you don't have to be running around all over the world to have fun and to find interesting things and to make friends that sometimes the most important things in life are right there, right in front of you. So uh, we made this little children's book, illustrated children's book, and we put it on Amazon and all of the summer uh, royalties for the book are going to um, COVID-19 relief projects that I found on fabulous um, charity uh, platform called Global Giving. And um, so, yes, so, so we make $8 on every book that you buy on Amazon. And um, and we at the end of each summer month, I deposit it into straight into this platform and straight into these COVID relief uh, projects that, that I have found. So would love people to buy the shaft in the flats uh, on Amazon. Um, we'll continue contributing. It's great for all ages from, I would say, age four to 104. I will definitely do my best to pass the word along. That's such a really creative and neat project. It was such a pleasure speaking with you today and learning from you today. To close this episode, I wanted to finish with two questions. What does celebrating 50 mean to you? And what advice do you have for women studying at Yale today? I would say when I first read about this project, is that to me, this project is about embracing and enjoying friendships from Yale and carrying them through uh, to your dockage. Uh, the friends you make there, uh, men and women, um, are life-changing people who you will fall in and out of touch with, but you will find them again um, at odd times and they'll pop up in your head and you reach across uh, the pond or wherever you live to, to find them and to stay in touch with them. And I think this pandemic, I know, has brought me in touch with Yale friends that I haven't been in touch with for a long time. And that's why, um, now that this book has come to fruition and I'm reading about it, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that uh, there are these possibilities that we've got friends all over the world from, from Yale. Um, and that's what it means to me. Women of Yale is created by the Yale Women's Leadership Initiative. Special thanks to Ms. Cherie Hart for her time and willingness to contribute. If you are curious to hear more about her incredible career in life, we encourage you to check out her autobiography, From Hollywood to Holy Wars, available on Amazon. Her children's book, The Chef in the Apartment, is also available on Amazon, with all proceeds benefiting COVID-19 aid. During this episode, we briefly discussed the ongoing crisis in Yemen. We encourage our listeners to remain informed and donate if able. Please check out Yale's student organization, Students for Yemen, and relief organizations such as the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation and Save the Children. As always, stay in touch with WLI by liking us on Facebook, Women's Leadership Initiative at Yale is the title of our page, and following us on Instagram, at Yale WLI. That's it for this episode of Women of Yale. I'm McKenna Christmas, and thanks so much for listening.